All right, as you're finding your seats, welcome again to Summit Church. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, I know that for me it was good. It was a time of family. It was a time of food. I think that's what it's supposed to be. But I know for others it was probably uh, not exactly what you chalked it up to be. And um, especially as we look forward now to Christmas, to the coming of Jesus, um, I want you to hear this, that um, some of our culture's greatest attempts at joy, um, they often fail, and that's why Jesus is so important. And, you know, if you're sitting here going like, man, our family was a wreck, and, and the travel was horrible, and I did not receive near the joy from Thanksgiving that I thought I would, um, Jesus is really better than Thanksgiving, and and better than presents at Christmas, and he's, he's good, and, and I just, I want to say that because I feel like a lot of times we put a lot of hope in things that just seem to disappoint a lot of the time, and uh, don't do that. Jesus is the thing that will never disappoint. I do want to point out as well that I'm giving extra heaven points to anyone in the first 10 rows. Um, yes, the cheap seats are packed, and uh, the, no one wants to be here, so you get three extra heaven points. They are worth nothing, but you have them now. Um, Congratulations, you can write home about that. Um, here's where we're at today. We are going to knock out the next few verses in our study, our walk through the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 40. So unlike the 31 verses that we covered last week, we've only got four today. Um, a much shorter passage, but I want to make sure that we look at where we are at contextually. Um, and then I also just want you to know this. After today, we're going to take a little break from Acts to do an Advent series, um, just really kind of from the heartbeat of what I just said, that in this season, we need to focus everything we have on Jesus and know and believe and live in such a manner as to testify to the fact that he is enough. If nothing else, if we have nothing else, we have him, and in him we have enough. Um, so we're going to kind of look at that over the next few weeks, but we will pick Acts back up with verse 41 and 42, um, the first week of 2015. So that's where we're going. Let's pray and see what God has for us today. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, for his life, his death, and the resurrection that you caused to occur through your power, Father. I pray that same resurrection power over this church and over each and every believer. I pray that today your gospel would be proclaimed, Jesus, you would be proclaimed, and that through your Holy Spirit, you would convict men and women, and, and our response today would be one of repentance, so that we as a church could just align with first church, the day one of the church, we could see repentance as the outpouring of your grace, the result of your grace. But God, you need to do that. You need to do that. So you're free to come and move as you will, because this is your church and, and we are your people. So you're free to move here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The context, the, the 31 verses from last week, 
Peter's Sermon on the Day of Pentecost. Um, beautiful sermon, four-part sermon, uh, apostolic preaching. Peter's an apostle, so he preaches apostolically. Apostolic preaching in the New Testament has four parts. It has part one, a declaration that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. So Peter does that first. Uh, everything's changing because of Jesus. The second part of apostolic preaching is that what is happening is happening um, because God has done and moved and foretold that it would happen. So everything that we see happening is happening because it was prophesied through the Old Testament prophets thousands of years ago. And what we're seeing is not by happenstance. It's occurring because God is sovereign. And we then see Old Testament passages that support that. The third movement in apostolic preaching is to proclaim the life the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Very important to all New Testament preaching. Jesus is the answer. Um, and then the fourth movement of apostolic preaching is a call to repentance or a call to faith. Now, why do I say both, repentance and faith? Those are two different things. How, how can you have such a skewed call? You call people to faith in Jesus Christ, correct? Well, yes, that's what we as a church would say. That's what we believe. You are saved because of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, there's nothing else that saves. Yet here in two verses, you are going to hear Peter call the tens of thousands of people who have listened to his sermon, he's going to call them to repentance. And so a lot of times we think that you put your faith in Jesus Christ first, and then as you live your life in Christ, you are going to encounter sin, you're going to continue to sin, and that's where you initiate in repentance. You ask for forgiveness and repent of your sin. Um, Repentance and faith are actually one in the same. They're really one in the same. And specifically when it comes to a call to salvation, you cannot have faith without repentance and you cannot have repentance without faith. L listen to this statement, it may help. By turning to Christ for our salvation, I'm hopeless, I'm lost, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus. So when I turn to Jesus Christ and put my trust and my faith in him, by turning to him for salvation, you are simultaneously turning away from the sin that you're asking Jesus to save you from, which is repentance. So you're caught up in sin, you're entangled, you're hopeless. When you turn from that hopelessness, from that sin, to Jesus in faith, you're actually repenting. So repentance and faith happen simultaneously. You know, they're, they're two things, but they happen simultaneously. You can't have one without the other. You can't repent without faith because Jesus is what initiates that heart change that is repentance. They're, they're one and the same. So let's, let's not flip out when we hear Peter call towards repentance here in just a moment because when he's calling towards repentance, he's then also by default calling to, to faith. They're one in the same. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When the people heard this, what had they heard? The apostolic preaching. Verses 5 through 36. So they'd heard the apostolic preaching. They'd heard the message of Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now Peter had masterfully, I think, intellectually convicted them and spiritually called them towards something good. But what cuts to the heart? What would truly cause one to be cut to the heart? I believe that that is God and God alone. I believe that that is the grace of God that cuts people to the heart, that prepares the heart for Jesus Christ. So when they are cut, I believe that is because God is moving and calling. 
When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, this is an all points bulletin. This is a cry out to anyone who may have a solution. And the question is this, brothers, what shall we do? There's a realization that has just occurred. It happened 10 seconds Prior to this, what had happened is there are tens of thousands of people who have just heard in an articulate manner that their Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come and usher in the kingdom of God, the one who would restore all things back to the way they were supposed to be, their Messiah and their Lord, their God, was Jesus. They had just been told that everything they'd hoped for in life was actually seen in the man Jesus Christ, and then they're told they just crucified that guy. You missed it. You missed every bit of it. There were some in that gathering on that day who had been in Jerusalem 53 days earlier, who had been in Jerusalem as Jesus walked the Via De La Rosa carrying the cross. There were some in that gathering on that day who had hurled insults upon Jesus, who had spat upon him and said, you got what you deserve, you Nazarene, you blasphemer. And then Peter, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, just took some of those same people and said, oh, by the way, that man you crucified, he was the Son of God. He was the Messiah, the one you've been waiting your whole life for, and you missed it. Not only did you miss it, you killed him. So I hope you hear the urgency of verse 37. I hope you hear the heart of what they're doing. In my mind, verse 37 should read this. Brothers, what do we need to do to be saved? But the omission of that phrase is huge. It's huge. It doesn't say, what do we need to do to be saved? It says, what do we need to do? Salvation isn't even on the radar. There is no salvation for the person who killed the Son of God. There is no salvation for the one who had waited their whole life for the Messiah, had been right in front of them, and they missed it. They didn't think there was any chance of salvation. So they begged and pleaded, tell us what we need to do to possibly earn back enough favor with God that then, then we might be able to come back and talk about salvation. Tell us how many things we need to sacrifice. Tell us how many prayers we need to pray. Tell us how many synagogue services we need to go to. Peter, tell us what do we got to do to get back in the good graces of God because we just killed his son. I think there are more of us in the room than you might think who can totally relate to this. Yes, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost but you don't know what I've done. You don't know my sin. You don't know what I've done against God. So he maybe came to save, but you can't save this. And it sure isn't going to happen just by me putting my faith in Jesus. I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to pay my penance. I'm going to have to put some money in the bank. I'm going to have to do something to get back in the good graces of God. And you sit here today hopeless, lost, and utterly despaired 
because you hear people like me say that Jesus came to save and you believe with everything in your heart that because of who I am and what I've done, he can't save me. And for those of you who believe that, I want you to see how short and sweet and simple Peter's response is to that humongous question. What do we need to do? Peter responds, verse 38. You need to repent and you need to be baptized. Every single one of you needs to repent and be baptized. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, it appears that the course to reconciliation, it appears that the path to salvation has two stops. Repentance, which is faith, and baptism. And now for those of you who are New Testament scholars, New Testament people, you know there's a problem with that. Because yes, you are saved by faith, but it's faith alone. You can't be throwing baptism on that. You can't put that in the equation. It's not faith plus anything, even if that is baptism. Baptism doesn't save. True. So what in the world do we do with this passage? That when distinctly asked the question, what do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Well, I think we need to separate them out. The graph behind you will kind of help you see that. Repentance, that is the inward heart change. That is the faith. That is the belief. That is what the New Testament says is the whole enchilada. And that is true. Baptism pairs very well with repentance, with faith in Jesus Christ. It goes with it. But it is the outward sign of faith and repentance. It does not save. It simply testifies to the working of Jesus that does save. Baptism does not forgive sin. It testifies to the forgiveness of sin. Baptism does not bring faith. It testifies to the working of faith in one's life. Baptism is the outward sign. Repentance, however, there's a definition. Repentance, if we're not on the same page, this could be a problem moving forward because it's the big idea. It's the whole thing. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, sin in your life. Repentance is a renouncing of that sin. Repentance is a sincere commitment to forsake sin and walk in obedience to Christ. Repentance is everything. Faith is everything. Baptism testifies to that repentance and to that faith. They do go together, but baptism does not save. Repentance and faith saves. There's three aspects to repentance. There's an intellectual component, a head component. So we love this, but a lot of times, unfortunately, we stop there. The intellectual component to repentance, towards a call 
by Jesus to relationship with him is that we must know and understand that our sin is wrong. we got to know that. We have to admit we have a sin problem. Repentance does not start, it cannot happen unless you say, sin is a problem and I need to do something about that. So then it moves to the heart. There's an emotional response, a heartfelt sorrow. This is an internal conviction or approval that what the scripture teaches about sin is true. That sin is disobedience to God. That if I love God, I cannot stay in sin. That Jesus came to redeem me from sin. That Jesus came and forgave all my sin. And as one who is forgiven, I need to live like one who is forgiven. There needs to be this heart-compelling drive that says what Scripture says about sin is true, and I can't play in both worlds. And then there's a decision, an action that needs to be made. It's a personal decision. It's you saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to renounce sin. I'm going to forsake it in my life. Sin no longer has a hold on me because of Jesus Christ. I'm going to claim him. I'm going to renounce sin. Repentance has a three-aspect approach. It's the head and the heart, and then it takes action. What is the fruit of repentance? What comes from repentance? If a lost person repents, if a believer repents, what is the fruit of that repentance? The fruit of repentance is a changed life. It's not a guilty conscience. I think I've determined where this heresy originated. It originated at these wonderful things called church camps. Okay? If you've been to church camp ever, there is a agreed-upon night where the goal is to get everyone in the room to cry. Agreed? The youth pastors will gather together and go, what song are we going to sing? How dark are we going to make it in here? Who, I mean, who's going to lead the charge? I need everyone bawling their eyes out by 11.15 because we've got to be back in our dorms. All right, that... You know what I'm talking about if you've been to church camp. The reason I believe, and I've been a part of those production meetings, <laughs> um, the reason that I believe as pastors we accept that is because the guilt that causes those tears, the guilt because of sin in one's life, that's real. And the tears are real. But the fruit of repentance, meaning what is birthed from genuine repentance, is not guilt. It's not tears. It's joy and life in Jesus Christ. So we missed it. A lot of us church camp people, we missed it. We think a good cry means that we've repented. In fact, we're nowhere near done. I've said it before. If you leave here feeling guilty, you're not done yet. Guilt moves us to repentance. Guilt initiates repentance. Tears are oftentimes a part of repentance, but it's what moves us towards it. It is not the result. The fruit of repentance is a changed life. It's joy. It's liberation. 
It's walking with Jesus Christ, having renounced our sin. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow, godly guilt. That brings repentance, which leads to salvation, and that leaves no regret. It leaves no guilt. True repentance, true salvation, no guilt. Sin is gone, done with, I've left it behind, now it's just me and Jesus going and doing awesome. But worldly sorrow, just good old-fashioned regular guilt, that brings death. Why? Because we chase the feeling of guilt more than we chase Jesus. And Jesus is the whole thing. Jesus is the main piece of the pie. If you feel sorry for your sin, great. Now repent from it. That doesn't mean you have repented just because you feel sorry. It is repentance and repentance alone, not baptism, that unleashes forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you ask him to forgive your sins and you turn from those sins, he does just that. He forgives all of your sins because of his atoning work on the cross and he forgives all the sins that you will commit because of his atoning work on the cross. Repentance unleashes that, not baptism. The gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us at faith, at salvation, when we repent and turn and trust in Jesus Christ. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the seal of salvation, Ephesians 4 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed. You were sealed at salvation with the Holy Spirit. That gift was given to you at the day of redemption. Now, can you grow in the gifts of the Spirit? Yes. Will the Spirit manifest itself in your life greater and greater and greater as you grow? Yes. But you get that gift at salvation. You're sealed when your faith in Jesus Christ is proclaimed And when you repent. Now, why in the world is baptism in this passage then? I believe it's because they go together. I also believe that Peter's hearers, the ones he was speaking to, had no problem with this. They were used to baptism. In the Jewish faith, if you wanted to convert to Judaism, you were not born Jewish, but you wanted to convert, you had to be baptized. Between the Old Testament and Jesus, there was this guy named John the Baptist. What did he have his disciples do? He asked them to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. He was baptized. He said there's one who's going to come later who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and will baptize with fire. It's going to be really a lot better. You're going to want that Holy Spirit. And so this idea of baptism is in the Old Testament. It's It's in the Jewish faith. It's in the intermediate time, John the Baptist. Jesus himself commands that we be baptized. Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was always just a part. It was faith and belief and then baptism. Baptism doesn't save but it was always there. And the people listening to Peter say, you need to repent and be baptized. They're like, yeah, of course that's what you do. That's what you do. You repent, you put your faith in Jesus Christ because he's called you, his grace has compelled you, and then as a public testimony to that faith and that repentance, you are baptized. The idea of an unbaptized believer does not exist in the New Testament. 
just let that sink in. I looked. The idea of an unbaptized believer in Jesus does not exist in the New Testament. I'm not saying you can't be an unbaptized believer, but the expectation in Scripture is that believers would get baptized. Okay, so why don't we then? Why, why, does it not, why is it not just something that faith, baptism, there's no deliberation, there's no discussion? Number one, the big one, denominational teaching. If you were raised Catholic like I was, you were baptized early just to get it out of the way. Take the original sin out of the picture, get baptized, check that off the list. you got about seven more sacraments you need to get through in your life, but just done. There's other denominations that teach infant baptism for whatever reason. I'm not here to bash that. My Catholic upbringing was good. But I think the church has, has been pushed away from baptism as something that just goes right along with faith and repentance because of denominational teaching. And then the other reason that I think there's people in here who are believers who have not been baptized is simply pride. And how do I know that? Because that was me. I became a believer in Jesus Christ, accepted him, did the whole thing. It was months of people saying, you need to get baptized, you need to get baptized, you need to get baptized. and I'm going, I was. I was baptized as a baby. Get off me. I, I, th- that was my story. But when I look back on it, the only reason that I didn't do it was because of pride, and here's specifically the pride I'm talking about. I was embarrassed to. None of my, all of my friends had done it when they were 10. I'm 15. I should have had it figured out by then. I'm not going to do what I see the little kitties in children's church doing. I, no, no, sir. Not about to embarrass myself that way. I finally submitted, was baptized, because I believe, ultimately, that that is a part. It doesn't save. I was fully saved, but it's a part of this. It goes together with it. Three years ago, my dad, at the age of 60, he walks up to my sister in my kitchen and says, I want you to baptize me right now. He'd been a believer for decades. He was good. Walks up to my sister and says, I I, I want you to do it right now. We walk out to the pool. He's baptized. Spiritually, what happened to my father in that moment? Did he receive the Holy Spirit? Nope, already had it. Did he receive forgiveness of sins? Absolutely not. Already had that. Did he get saved right then? No, already done. What happened? The family went, yes! That's incredible! You're 60 years old. I can't believe you just did that. The humility that that took for you to look at your daughter and go, dunk me. Dunk me. Why? Because I love Jesus. I love him, and he says I should get baptized. I've been putting it off for a long time, so let's just do it right now. Let's do this. He proclaimed and testified Jesus, and the rest of the family went, yeah! That's awesome! It's a public testimony. It's an unequivocal pronouncement that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, that you have the Holy Spirit, that you've been forgiven, It goes with it. You get what I'm saying. 
So the call today to you, church, is the same call as 2,000 years ago. As the band comes back up here, I just want to read verses 39 and 40. Peter said that this is the promise for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Those that God wants, he will ruthlessly pursue with his love and with his grace. He will call them. And the promise of salvation is for us and for our children and for our children's children. And it's the same for them at the day of Pentecost. It's for them and for their children and their children's children. The call of Jesus Christ in salvation is for everyone that God calls. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Peter stole that from Jesus. Jesus used that phrase a bunch. Pleading with the Israelites there in Galilee, hey, this generation is corrupt. And, and I can't help but look at our generation and go, yeah, the same is true today. The world offers us all kinds of false hope and false joy and false salvation. And Jesus is still the answer. The promise of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is still the hope of the world. It has not changed today. And the way that we enter into that promise is through repentance and baptism. So I ask you, church, to respond the same way that Peter called those gathered on that day to respond and if you read the next verse, verse 41, 3,000 did on that day. So that means that there are some here today who need to respond, need to respond in faith to Jesus Christ through repentance because God is calling you. He's calling you to a promise that you've maybe been running from for a long time, but you know he's calling you. You know that you need to trust in Jesus Christ and turn from your sin. So let's let today be that day of salvation for you. For those whom God is calling. For those whom God has called. Who you, you, can, you can point to the day or the season where you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and you repented from your sins. But that was a long time ago. And, and you've turned away from that. You, you've chased sin in this world. Repentance is a lifelong process. That's where faith and repentance have some anonymity. You need faith because faith is what initiates Jesus Christ in your life. And you need Jesus Christ in your life compelling you to turn from sin. You need his grace. So his faith continually compels you to continually repent and to renounce your sin and to make a decision to cling to Jesus. Some of you need to make a public statement of that today by coming forward and saying, I need to repent I need to turn back to Jesus. He's calling me to do just that. I believe him. My faith is in him. But I need to turn from the sin that has so wickedly entangled me. And some of you, you need to submit to baptism. You are a believer. But for whatever reason, poor teaching, pride, you name it. You've never submitted to baptism. I would love you to come and say, I need to get baptized. And next week, you'll have an opportunity to do that. I'm going to hold you underwater. 
opportunity to publicly testify to Jesus Christ and his work in your life. So there's three calls. I believe that's going to hit a lot of us. Towards the end of this response time, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, a beautiful reminder of the body and blood that has initiated all this. But I plead with you to respond. For those of you who need to repent, repent. For those of you who need to be baptized, be baptized. It's the same call as Peter made 2,000 years ago, and it still rings true today. For those whom God is calling, he's begging you to respond. So I pray you do that. I pray you do that in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, give us the grace necessary to hear your call. And for those you're calling, I pray they respond. I pray they respond in repentance and baptism, in faith and in hope. I pray they respond to you, Jesus Christ, and to no other. Because of you enabling this move, you will see great glory in your church. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. And if God is calling you to respond, come down and let our pastors and our prayer team minister to you.